0: We're going to be in the book of Job again today, if you can find that, if you haven't already, Job chapter 1. We're looking together into God's word around the idea of seeing through suffering and pain. And if you think of anybody in the Bible who experienced that, Job certainly is at or near the top of the list. And his experience was an extreme one. He experienced extreme suffering and pain in his life on many levels. And if we can learn from somebody who... we can learn from someone who experienced a hard situation in the extreme... And what that means is we can also learn about our situation because the principles and truths that apply to a man like that also apply to us in any circumstance that we might have. And at the end of his experience, Job said to God, he said, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. And James said you have heard of the perseverance of Job. And then James added this thought, and you have seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So Job saw things about God that he did not perceive prior to his experience. He perceived them at the end of his experience. And God's word tells us that we can see truths and facets of who God is from our experiences of trials and suffering as well, which he's talking about in the book of James. So that's, that's what we're endeavoring to do, is to see, not just see our suffering and pain, which is what we normally naturally focus on, right? Because that's what's happening to us. So that's where our focus is. But we are learning to look beyond that and to see through the suffering and pain and see the things that, that God has for us. So today we come to the second part of this message, the adversary. Uh, last week we we looked at the man and saw that suffering and pain happen to very good people like Job, very successful people like Job, intensely devout individuals like Job was. And so none of us is exempt from the kind of suffering pain that suffering and pain that even he experienced. And today we come to the adversary, the adversary. When we go through extremely difficult times, it's important to realize that there is a powerful force of evil that may be involved in the hard experience that we're having. Look with me at Job chapter 1 and I'll read starting with verse 6, Job chapter 1 starting in verse six. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth? a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. What do we learn from this section of the story of Job about the adversary? Well, we learn the adversary's identity. The, the word Satan that we see in our Bibles there means Adversary. And it is a name that means one who opposes. The word Satan means one who is in an adversarial role. That could be, for example, in a legal situation where you have a, a prosecuting attorney and a defending attorney, and they are in adversarial roles. They are, they are in opposite positions. That's the idea of this word behind the name Satan. Or in a military situation where you have two armies and they're opposed to each other. They are, they are enemies. They're adversaries. That's the idea of this word. So, so that's what the name means. It means an adversary. And, and we know that Satan was a high angelic creature. In fact, in verse 6, the phrase the sons of God is a, a phrase that's used in the Old Testament to refer to angels. Satan is an angel. He is an angelic creature in a high position and he is powerful he has high status among uh, his own in his own realm and before he fell he was in a position of high rank among the angels of God and he does oppose God he opposed God in his initial rebellion um, he continually attempts to thwart the purposes and the plan of God, and along with that, he actively turns people away from God and toward destruction. So Satan is a high angelic creature who is in opposition to God. He is in an adversarial role against God. He is the enemy of God. He is endeavoring to, to launch attacks against God himself and all that God endeavors to do for his own glory and he does that by strategically impacting and affecting and and leveraging God's creatures and turning us against God so he hates God and he attempts to strike at God by turning his creatures against him the narrative of Job tells us a lot about how Satan operates. And if you want to understand Satan, um, read, read the book of Job, and especially the first and second chapters of Job. This is a very extensive description of how Satan operates. And, and what, what we see here is confirmed in other scripture as well. So let's get a better understanding of the adversary's activity. First of all, he is proactive. He is not at rest. He is not waiting for something bad to happen that he can somehow utilize for his advantage. No, he is out and about and he is creating opportunities and he is setting snares and he is inciting uh, division. He is proactive. And I think it's implied here in verse 7 where the Lord says to Satan, from where do you come? And and Satan says, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. He is moving around. The idea of, of going to and fro is, is the idea of moving quickly. So he's, he's on purpose, right? He's not just meandering. He is, he is on the move. We would say he is on the prowl. And he's not just sitting back and waiting for you to fail. He is on the earth. He is in the realm of God's creation. Why? Because that's where we live. That's where God's creatures are. And he's looking for vulnerable people that he can destroy, that he can turn against God. Now, what does this remind you of? It reminds me of First Peter 5, 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary The devil does what? What what does 1 Peter 5, 8 say? Your average the devil does what? Do you remember? He walks around. That's right. He is walking around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He is on the prowl for prey. And certainly he is strategic in whom he selects. In fact, one of the kinds of people that he strategizes against is those in spiritual leadership. 1 Timothy 3 talks about pastors not being a novice, lest they be inflated with pride and fall into the snare of the devil. So he does target certain kinds of people. He's on the prowl. But I think he's also sensitive not only to to people that that he could could affect in a strategic way, but he's also sensitive to those who are weak and vulnerable, like a lion looking for prey, noticing the, the animal that's straggling behind or... Or Lord isn't as strong as the others or is out of the place of protection. This lends seriousness, I think, to uh, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, where he's talking about a man who was committing very serious immorality and he instructed the church. Paul instructed the church in Corinth to to enact church discipline, removing him from the fellowship of the church, but it also says turning him over to who? Satan right so he's out of that protective fellowship and community of believers and he's exposed to the work of Satan that is very serious isn't it so that's the idea Satan is proactive he's looking for those who are in positions that he can affect strategically or that are vulnerable to him his activity is strategic he is on the earth he does target people in fact, listen to, to this sampling of individuals that Satan targeted that we find in Scripture. First Chronicles 21.1, he stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. Zechariah 3, verses 1 and 2, he stood at the right hand of Joshua the high priest to resist him. Matthew 4, who did Satan target there? Jesus himself. He tempted Jesus. In Matthew 16, he, he attempted to get at Jesus through Peter when Peter said, no, this is not going to happen to you. He was resisting the pathway toward the cross and what he would accomplish there. Mark 4 tells us that Satan actually snatches away the word that is sown in the heart's of those who listen to it. He snatches it away. This is why when I pray for a service like this one, when I pray for my own preaching of the word, one of the ways I pray is that God would not allow Satan to have access to the minds and hearts of the people who are going to be there to snatch away the word, right? Luke chapter 22, he entered Judas Iscariot. Luke 22, Luke twenty two thirty one. he desired to have Peter in order to sift him. In Acts chapter 5, Satan filled the heart of Ananias to lie to the Holy Spirit. So, so here he's at work in the church, attempting to destroy Christ's work on earth. 1 Corinthians 7, 5 tells us that he tempts husbands or wives. He says you need to be in an intimate relationship with each, with each other. If you're not, it's for a short time and for a specific purpose, lest Satan tempt you. So Satan does tempt husbands and wives with adultery. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 tells us he gets an advantage through unforgiveness within the church. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says that his thorn in the flesh was the messenger of who? Satan. To beat up on him. So Paul was targeted. First Thessalonians 2 says that Satan hindered Paul from visiting Thessalonica. I mentioned First Timothy 3. A pastor should not be a novice, lest being puffed up with pride he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So Satan targets pastors. Revelation 12 says he deceives the whole world. And Second Corinthians 4, 4 says he blinds the minds of those who are perishing. That is a sampling of the way that Satan strategizes strategizes to destroy and to strike at the heart of God. And then, of course, Job is a very pronounced example of this. So here's a question for you. Do you think that, based on these examples, Satan is proactively and strategically targeting anybody here today? It's very likely that he is, isn't it? Do you think that Satan may be involved in circumstances and even the hearts and lives of people who cause you suffering and pain? It's very possible. That's what we see here in in the book of Job, right? That Satan was involved in what happened to Job. And so we could say, yes, it is possible that Satan is using circumstances and other individuals that cause us harm to try to take us out so as we heard paul exhorts us put on the whole armor of god that you may be able to stand against the wiles the schemes the strategies of the devil for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood there is a spiritual enemy we wrestle against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. It is a reality. Spiritual warfare is real. He is also persistent. He is persistent. I look with me at chapter two, Job chapter two, and we see we see Satan reporting to God again, and this is an indication of God's sovereignty over. Over the demonic realm. Because Satan reports to him. So chapter 2 verse 1. Again there was a day when the sons of God. Came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came also among them. To present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan. Again from where do you come? Satan answered the Lord and said from going to and fro on the earth. And walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan. If you consider my servant Job. There's none like him on the earth. A blameless and upright man. One who fears God and shuns evil. And look at the next word. Still, even though he'd already been through tragedy and the loss of property and the loss of family that happened back in chapter 1, now the second time around, God says, he still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. So what this reflects to me is that Satan is persistent, that that his attacks and his efforts continue on, And he attacks again. And it is true that Satan can work on us for years. His strategies can extend over decades. You might face temptations when you are very young. A young boy or a young girl. That Satan uses later in life because of desires. Those temptations have aroused. Or experiences that you have had from indulging in those temptations. And Satan will leverage that against you many times for a lifetime. He is persistent. Extended trials, repeated trials are the evidence of this. And he is hostile. He is hostile. He accused Job and he accused God. And you see this especially back in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. He was maligning Job and God when he says, Job is just loyal and worships you because of what you do for him, because of the way you have prospered him. And he is presenting his accusation about his motive for fearing God and God's motive for blessing Job. And he is the accuser. He's called this in Revelation chapter 12, that old serpent called the devil and Satan. Revelation twelve ten, the accuser of our brethren who accuse them night and day. Has been cast down. Satan accuses you to God. Satan incites others to accuse you. And Satan can even accuse you to yourself. God doesn't accuse in order to destroy, does he? God convicts us of our sin. So that we can confess them. His purpose is to restore his purpose is for us to enjoy fellowship with him and to be right with him and have his peace reigning in our lives not to create doubt not to load us up with guilt not to put us down satan accuses god convicts so that we can be forgiven and fellowship with him the adversary's activity is also controlled it is controlled It is subject to God's authority. And you see this in chapter 1, verse 12. All that he has is in your power, only do not lay a hand on his person. You see it also in chapter 2, verse 6. Behold, he's in your hand, but spare his life. Satan cannot do whatever he wants. He cannot just produce a plan and develop a strategy and go on the warpath freely and on his own. He is subject to God's authority, and God places limitations on what he can do. And that's encouraging. That is comforting. And that's where we realize that we are in the hand of a sovereign God, don't we? That whatever is happening in our lives, that God is aware, and God, for whatever purpose he may have, has permitted, even when it is worst-case scenario like Job experienced, even when it is extremely hard, even when it includes attacks and loss that God in his sovereignty has permitted for his purpose. And Satan is not doing his worst because God has restricted him from that. Now, we get a little bit more into the cause of of Job's suffering and pain that Satan brought And let's call this the adversary's role. And an extension of what we just saw is that his role includes the fact that he is subject to God's sovereignty. And this is very important because it removes the fear factor. One of Satan's designs is to strike fear in us to make us tremble as the mighty fortress Is our God says, We tremble not for him. We do not have to be afraid of him because of God's control and his sovereignty. And he has ultimate and complete authority over Satan, and he exercises iron handed control over anything that Satan designs against you. So, one thing that you can always say is, I am safe. I am safe. As hard as it is, as much as you may hurt, whatever the threats may be, even as you think about the, the, the culture we live in and the pressures and the forces and the, the politics and the people in power and the influences of evil, we are safe in him, right? Because of his sovereign control over Satan. And because God is sovereign, he is actually using Satan to accomplish what he wants. And that is an amazing truth, that Satan is actually instrumental in God's plan. Now, when we look at chapter 1 and verse 8, it sounds to us like the Lord was the one to raise the subject of Job, doesn't it? The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? It's almost as if God wants Satan and is somehow taunting Satan to do something to Job. But look over at chapter 2 and verse 3. In chapter 2, verse 3, in this second appearance of Satan before God, the Lord says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him in the earth, blameless and upright. And then look at the end of the verse He holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. And the idea of the word incited is to instigate. So what this is telling us is that Satan was the instigator. And we don't know exactly what Satan might have done or may have said But what it seems like from this is that he's the one who initiated this attention now that's being focused on Job. He said or did something, and and as as God says here, without cause. Again, there was no basis in Job's life. There was nothing wrong, nothing in Job's life that, that deserved God's judgment. So God was not enacting or allowing what happened to Job to punish him Here, Satan is the one that's receiving the blame, isn't he, for what happened to Job. But God's plan used Satan. Satan was an agent in what was happening to Job. And Satan is part of God's great plan. And again, that's something hard for us to understand, isn't it? That Satan plays a part in the grand unfolding plan of God. Because he is sovereign, because he is in control, he is guiding and using the activity of Satan to accomplish exactly what he wants to. And so that's something we see, right? As we see through suffering and pain, what do we see? We see an adversary. But we see beyond just the adversary, what he's doing, what he's causing, what he's inciting, what he's instigating, the ways he's accusing, the damage he wants to do, the destruction that he wants to bring. We see beyond that. And so you know what? There is a God who is sovereign and who is using the evil that Satan intends and even the harm that people can do to accomplish his purpose. Now, with all of these um, truths that we're looking at, I try to find a New Testament perspective on them. So I'm going to ask you to go with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 5. I want to make this personal because that's what Peter was doing. Peter was writing to a group of people who experienced great suffering. They were in severe hardship financially, economically, circumstantially. A lot of it was because they were Christians, because they refused to give in to the pressures of the culture around them and the authorities in their lives. He was saying live under that authority, live with those those government leaders, those slave masters, even those husbands and those wives who are unfair, who mistreat you, especially because you're a Christian, live under them in the godliest way possible. But now as he he reaches the end of his letter to them, and they're sitting there hearing this letter read to them, it becomes very personal. And I hope this will happen for you this morning. And if you are going through suffering and pain right now, or know someone who is, I want these words to speak very personally to you. Look with me at First Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 6. 1 Peter 5, 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So as those suffering individuals were sitting there hearing Peter's letter read, and it comes to the end, he gets very personal with them, doesn't he? He says, here's the takeaway. Here's what I want you to remember. Here's what I want you to go out and and to have in your mind and hold in your heart and and to live by. He says, God cares for you, doesn't he? In verse 7, What a great reminder that is. Regardless of the extremity of the suffering and hardship, you have a loving God who is concerned for you. And so you can entrust your burdens. You can express your burdens. You can turn over your hurts to Him because He cares for you. What a precious promise that is. He he says, Be sober, take this seriously, and be vigilant, be on guard. We are naturally naive, and we are vulnerable, and we don't think about Satan and what he may be up to. Sometimes we miss the fact that when, when hard things are happening or we're being tempted that, that there is an enemy. So he says, be aware of this, take it seriously, and be on guard. And then he says in, in verse 8, resist him, or excuse me, verse 9, resist him steadfast in the faith. The idea of resist is to keep your feet planted, to To put your feet solidly on the ground and not move, not be pushed or drawn away. What is it that you are are holding firm to and standing firmly on? It is the faith. That's what you know to be true. What you've learned all your life what you understand from the Word of God about who God is and the way that God works and the kind of God you have and the Heavenly Father who loves you and the Savior who redeemed you. That's the faith. It's what you know to be true, what you believe in and what you've trusted in. So, so here, here's, the, here's the insight. Here's what we see through suffering and pain. Keep your feet planted on what you believe and know is true. During those extremely difficult times. It is so easy to get knocked off balance. It is so common to become disoriented. Forget who your God is. Not recall what he has done for you. The truths become dim in our minds. As the the suffering and the hardship. Becomes very pronounced in our minds. Right? We can lose sight. So. Keep your feet planted on what you believe and know to be true when it gets hard and when it hurts. And these are simple truths that we know. Who God is, what his word tells us, what Jesus has done for us, his death and resurrection in our place. The home we have in heaven, the hope that is ours in heaven. All of that, right? And it's also helpful to know you're not alone. And he says this in verse 9 as well. The same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. It doesn't take the hurt away. It doesn't relieve the pressures or resolve all the problems. But it just is a good reminder, right? That you're not alone in your suffering. Other people are hurting too. God knows about your suffering and pain. God cares about your suffering and pain. And God has called you to a path That includes suffering and pain. That one might be a little harder to swallow. That God has actually called us to a path that includes these hardships. So it's not just it happens to everybody. It happens to you. And it happens to me. And God has put us on this path just like, yes, in his sovereignty, he allowed Satan access to Job But he was also sovereignly involved in doing a work in Job's life. And the same is true for you. He has put you on that path and in that place of suffering and pain. And look at what he says in verse 10. But, so in spite of Satan's attacks and all the the difficulty that brings to your life, now he calls upon God in their behalf. May the God of all grace... God's grace is not only his favor that saves us, it's the special favor he shows to us in all circumstances of life. The God who shows you favor, and it's all grace. It is an infinite reservoir of his grace. It applies to every kind of situation and every aspect of your circumstance. It is all grace, the God who who provides all grace to you who called us there it is right he put us on this path to his eternal glory that is to enjoy him forever in his glory but also for us to be partakers in his glory as our lives are refined by Christ Jesus our savior our mediator after you have suffered a while there it is he has called us to this pathway it is a hard one It lasts for a period of time and then it's over. But when you're in that time period, it might seem like it's lasting forever and you're not going to make it. But he says, you will come out the other side. After you have suffered, he acknowledges the pain, but he also tells you it's going to be temporary and now look at what he's doing. Perfect. That means to mend or to restore. We often think of the word perfect in the Bible as as being to bring somebody to completion or to maturity. That's true uh, in many places where that word is used. This word's a little bit different. This word, translated perfect here, was used in literature, Greek literature outside of the New Testament. So literature during the same time that Peter wrote, but not New Testament um, literature. Of uh, It was actually a medical term, and it was used of the process when somebody would break a bone and a physician would, would reset the bone so it would heal properly, and that bone would mend, and sometimes, in many cases, you might have heard this, actually that, that uh, healed bone becomes stronger when it heals together than it was before. That's what this word is talking about, right? So it's the idea of of something being broken and then restored to its original condition to fulfill its intended purpose, and sometimes it's even stronger than it was before. What a beautiful picture of what your suffering does for you. May the God of all grace, after you've suffered for a while, do this healing, mending bone-setting, fracture-healing work in you and restoring you to the, to the condition and the purpose for which he created you to follow Christ, to fulfill God's will. And in doing so, potentially, you're going to be even stronger than you were before. Isn't that a great picture of the work God's doing? The, this, this word is also used of, um, of a ship that's been out to sea and sailing in rough waters, and storms, and beaten by the wind, and the salt water has eroded and corroded the the shiny um, fixtures on the ship, and fittings, and the sails are tattered, and the, the ropes are frayed, and it limps into harbor, and they pull it out of the water, and the shipwrights go to work, and they they repair everything that's broken, and they they refinish the woodwork and they patch the holes and they give it new sails and new lines and polish the fittings and it's ready to go. Having come through the rough waters and the storms, it's now restored to that right condition, that original condition so that it can go back out and haul that cargo or bring in those fish or, or transport those passengers, whatever it was intended to do. And isn't it true that when you, as a believer, go through rough waters and fierce storms, that you become worn and torn and sometimes limp in to the throne of grace or to a a fellowship of believers like this and just say, God, will will you just work on me? Will you just go to work in me? Will you restore me? And he does that, doesn't he? He does that. He refits you so that you can go back out. And accomplish more of what he called you to do. It's also used of when when Jesus approached the disciples there by the Sea of Galilee, and and it says they were mending their nets. That's this word. They were mending their nets. A net, fishing net that's been worn and torn by repeated use and hauling in loads of fish, and those pieces come apart, and the fishermen weave or tie them back together so the net can be used again that's the idea and that's what he's doing in you in spite of the destructive force working against you in spite of the adversary who hates you wants to take you down and you come back in you're like I just need to be restored and God does that for you he is perfecting you. He is establishing you, Peter says. May he, may he establish you. That is to make you firm and strengthen you. That's to make you strong. Similar ideas so that you become more capable. So those, those, those trials and that suffering is not designed to weaken you or to break you. as to strengthen you. Now we know, as Paul said, when he was beaten up by Satan... When I am weak, that's when I'm strong. So the storms and the trials and the attacks force us to recognize how weak we are and we say, God, I just need your help. And he does strengthen us. He does enable you to go through the hard experience and to come through the hard experience and to serve him and glorify him even better as a result. And to settle you. May he settle you. God's design is not to shake your faith, but to settle you in your faith. Not to create doubt, but to create certainty in you. The word settle means to lay a foundation. The idea is that your your relationship with God, your trust in God, your belief in everything about God is settled as a result. Because you see God's hand, you experience God at work, you receive the help that he gives and you say you know what it's all true my God is real what he says is true and you're even settled in that these are good things these make you a stronger Christian these exhibit God's grace in your life and all of this does what Peter says in verse 11 to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Right? Is he just pronouncing a benediction? Is he just adding the typical tag on the end of, a, of a, an epistle? No, he, he's continuing the thought. Hey, Satan's on the attack. The God of grace is at work doing all this in you. And the outcome is God receives the glory. I think one of the things that we wrestle with is that God allows the adversary to have access, and that somehow it's even in God's plan for us to experience suffering. That's heart. I think two ways to respond to that one is to trust the God you know, to trust Him, that He does care for you, that you are safe. And to engage in the process of growth. to Say, all right, Lord, if this is what you are doing, as hard as it is, I trust you, I trust the God I know, and I want this process in my life. I want the refining, I want the purging. I want you to expose my weakness so that I can be strong in you. And ultimately, Lord, I want your character to grow in me. I want the, the glory of Christ to shine out of me. And I want you to get the glory. I want that. So trust the God you know and engage in the process of growth that he has for you. Thankfully, we can look forward to the adversary's fate. When it all started, Satan's engagement with mankind back in the Garden of Eden, God cursed and said to Satan that the promised seed, whom we know is Christ the Messiah, will bruise your head. He will bruise your head. Jesus said in John 12, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I'm lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all people to myself. Jesus' death and resurrection spelled Satan's doom. And as, sorry, I'm getting a little bit ahead here. There we go. As uh, John wrote in Revelation, that the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is Satan's final destiny, isn't it? Now it's important to recognize that not only is Satan cast into the lake of fire, but it says anyone who was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So this is Satan's final destiny to be separated from God in a place of torment forever, but this is also sadly the destiny of those whose names are not in the book of life. And what is that? That is God's record of those who have received eternal life by trusting in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And as Jesus commissioned Paul and assigned him to preach, he said, this is the message that the gospel will open their eyes to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So how are people saved from the same destiny, the same doom that Satan faces? By faith in Christ. And so for anybody here who has never trusted Christ as your Savior, You do not want to share the same fate as Satan. Trust Christ. Have your sins forgiven and be saved. And that is our message as well. And just as as God commissioned Paul to preach that message, that is a message for us to spread also. Your trials, your suffering and pain are a test. Satan wants you to fail and he wants you to fall. God wants you to grow and wants you to glorify him. We're going to end with, uh, with a song. And I believe this is one that you all hear at